everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 6. We left off last time with the resounding Carthaginian defeat at the Battle of Himera against the Sicilian city-state of Syracuse. As a member of the greater Greek or Hellenic world, Syracuse had risen from being a small settlement by a swamp into a thriving trade power due to its magnificent natural harbor and the fruitful land of Sicily. Syracuse also benefited from the rulership of the tyrant Galon, who jostled his way through the oftentimes shifting and treacherous diplomatic landscape of the Hellenic world with cunning and finesse. An ambitious and able ruler, Galon increased the city's population via forced migration, maintained a disciplined and veteran hoplite army, and raised numerous public buildings using the Carthaginian captives from Himera and the Carthaginian indemnity of 2,000 talents of silver. By the time Galon died in 478 BC, he had extended Syracuse's control over the majority of eastern Sicily, and Syracuse was in the ascendancy on the island. Meanwhile, in the 70 years following Himera, Carthage remained aloof from Sicilian affairs, focusing instead on internal reforms. Under the leadership of the Magonid clan, the leading family in Carthage, New political bodies were formed to make the Carthaginian government more representative in nature. Although the Bolm remained intact as the Senate or Elders of Carthage, the Tribunal of 104 was formed alongside it. This body of 104 judges functioned as a sort of supreme court, which performed administrative as well as judicial tasks including judging the actions of military commanders. These judges were later notorious for their corruption and venality, and they often held their positions for life until, under Hannibal Barca's reforms, they were forced to accept term limits of one year. The suffiture was also established in this time. Similar to the consuls of Rome, these made up the executive arm of the government. Two men were elected every year to be the suffets, which means judge, who were basically co-presidents. The Suffets had a huge amount of administrative and judicial power and could appoint a host of lesser officials under them, but their authority was checked by both the Senate and the Tribunal of 104. Finally, some limited power was given to all the citizens of Carthage, who could now come together as the popular assembly and vote on certain important matters of state such as the election of generals. Carthage also had a constitution, which the great philosopher Aristotle discussed at length in one of his books. In fact, Aristotle viewed the Carthaginian system of government, with its checks and balances, as excellent, although he pointed out that corruption was often rampant and that problems were created by the fact that one individual could hold multiple offices at once. Carthage's government was also widely admired in the greater Hellenic world, particularly in Athens and the Carthaginian Republic was likely one of the reasons that the Greeks never really viewed the Carthaginians as complete barbarians, like the Persians. Thus, under Meganid rule following Hamira, Carthage resembled much more of a republic than an oligarchy, albeit to the end the supreme power was always in the hands of the oligarchs. Carthage made other improvements during this period as well. The city's complex grid system was overhauled to allow for the older city districts to be combined with the newer ones. Districts situated on hills were incorporated into this grid, 
by running buildings and streets in a circular or fan-like pattern around the sides of the hills, with the giant hill of the Bursa containing large numbers of buildings right up to the citadel walls. These buildings would be mostly built of sandstone and would be circular or semicircular in shape. The Carthaginians built many of these new residential districts by the sea, and they constructed a large sea wall with a massive gate to protect them. Carthage also took the opportunity to expand its other defenses, expanding the city walls to the famous 21-mile stretch of battlements that enclosed the entire city. These walls were estimated to be over 30 feet thick and 50 feet high. The Carthaginians constructed the walls using a special form of cement mixed with aggregate particles, and using this they sealed the large stone slabs and joined them together. A terrace along the top of the wall provided cover for missile troops who would fire down at attackers. Within the walls, vaulted chambers and compartments provided storage and barracks, and each wall could house up to 70 elephants, 4,000 cavalry, and 20,000 men. Along the western side of the city, which was the most vulnerable to attack, a triple layer of these walls was built. The north and south of the city had a set of double walls, while the east only needed a single wall, since there the land made it unlikely that a besieging army could mount a successful attack. Large towers approximately four stories high overlooked these walls at intervals. The complex around the Bursa contained a similar set of walls two miles long and could house 50,000 citizens in an emergency, while the temple complexes of Baal and Tanit could contain a garrison of a thousand men. Large as these numbers may seem, they would be a mere drop in the ocean of Carthage's inhabitants. Some historians estimate that Carthage had a population of 700,000 souls by this point. Even if this is an exaggeration, it is likely that Carthage did have a massive population during this period, making it one of the largest and strongest cities of the ancient world. While we're speaking of Carthaginian building projects, Carthage was famed for its double port complex, an engineering marvel of antiquity. The historians Appian and Polybius both describe the port in detail, and modern archaeology has backed up their claims. The first harbor ran in between two long promontories of land, and this first section was devoted to countless merchant quays and wharfs, which sheltered, supplied, and refitted Carthage's enormous merchant fleet. These wharves were exceptionally well built, using large sandstone blocks which rose well out of the water. Beyond this outer harbor, the Carthaginians excavated a large circular area. Within this, they constructed a large naval base to house their immense navy. The Carthaginians maximized the space of the facility by a brilliant engineering design. The quays fanned out in a circle throughout the harbor, allowing for every inch of the shoreline to be dedicated to the disembarking or launching of ships. Ships were hauled out of the water using wooden ramps, and they would then be carried to the dry docks which circled the harbor. These dry docks employed legions of shipwrights, carpenters, smiths, sailmakers, rope makers, and other craftsmen critical to the fleet's success. Magazines containing tackle, gear, and weapons surrounded these dry docks. 
The outer ring of Carthage's military harbor could house nearly 220 ships of war when it was at full capacity. If this wasn't impressive enough, within the center of the military harbor, the Carthaginians built an artificial island using approximately 350,000 cubic feet of the 8.3 million cubic feet of soil they had excavated in building the harbors. This island could house another 140 ships in its 30 dry docks, and it also contained the Admiral's home. Here, the Admiral of the fleet overlooked all the operations, with his support staff organizing and directing the ship maneuvers below. Under the Admiral's direction, the trumpeteer blew signals to the ships, while the Admiral's herald stood by to deliver personal orders to his captains. A narrow bridge connected this island to the mainland, allowing messengers to be sent to and from the leading bodies of the government. Two towers overlooked the entrance to the merchant harbor. These connected to a thick, single wall which enveloped the outer merchant harbor, while a strong double wall shielded the inner military harbor. According to Polybius, a great deal of secrecy surrounded the naval harbor. The walls doubled as both a defense from attack and a shelter from unfriendly eyes. Even merchants in the inner harbor were required to leave through a different gate so they couldn't view the activities of the military dockyards. By contrast, the Carthaginian admiral could view out to sea from the island hill in the inner harbor, providing the Carthaginians with crucial intelligence at all times. In all, the Carthaginian double harbor complex covered approximately 50 acres. With its colossal quays, immense workshops, and strong fortifications, the Carthaginian harbor kept her massive fleet in a state of constant readiness to meet any and all threats to the city in the Mediterranean Sea. While Carthage made the most of the peace with Syracuse by focusing on government reforms and an infrastructure overhaul, Syracuse struggled with both internal civil unrest and external assaults by other powerful Hellenic states. In spite of the devastating casualties the Syracusans inflicted on the Carthaginians, the Battle of Himera proved to be not as decisive as everyone at first thought. In spite of Gelon's propaganda campaign, which attempted to turn Himera into the equivalent of the brilliant Greek victory at Salamis, little changed politically in Sicily following the battle with the Carthaginians remaining in control of the western half of the island. Trade and skirmishes continued unabated between the diverse Phoenician, Greek, and Sicilian towns, and to all intents and purposes, Himera had a minuscule effect on the day-to-day life in Sicily. Although Syracuse had experienced a bonanza of trade and prosperity under Gelon, Hiero, Gelon's brother and successor, proved to have neither his brother's charisma or leadership. More of a scholar than a warrior or a statesman, Hiero's court supported many famed Greek poets and playwrights, notably Aeschylus, a writer of tragedies. Aeschylus features prominently in what is perhaps the most interesting event of Hiero's reign, namely, Aeschylus's rather ridiculous death. According to ancient accounts, a prophecy stated that Aeschylus would be killed by a falling object. In order to avoid this, Aeschylus spent most of his time outside. However, one day, an eagle flying overhead with a tortoise in its talons mistook Aeschylus's bald head for a rock and dropped the tortoise on his head, 
killing him with the blow. Thus, the moral of the story is, if you are lacking in the hair department, maybe invest in a hat. It could be a lifesaver. Besides the fate of his luckless playwright, little else is worth mentioning about Hiero's reign. He was briefly succeeded by two more brothers, and then Syracuse fluctuated back and forth in a period of chaos between democratic and autocratic governments. If the internal feuding wasn't bad enough, greater threats were on the horizon. For reasons now unclear, the city-state of Athens, the jewel of Hellenic intellectual and naval power, had long shown a somewhat sinister interest in Sicily, in spite of the fact that the island was far removed from her sphere of influence. She had allied herself with several of the Ionian Greek city-states of Sicily, notably the Greek city of Segesta, which historian John Julius Norwich states was the diplomatic equivalent to a military alliance between China and Paraguay today. In spite of this criticism, Athens took great interest in Sicilian affairs, especially in the conflicts between the Ionian cities of the north and the Dorian cities of the south, such as Syracuse. The Ionians were one of the four major tribes of Greece during the Classical period. Athens herself was an Ionian city, and these cities were renowned for their love of philosophy and the arts. By contrast, the Dorians, typified by the austere and militaristic Spartans, were a sober-minded and rather stoic people who inhabited the lower portion of the Greek Peloponnese. In addition to their different temperaments, these tribes were separated by the dialects they spoke, and these divisions tended to carry over to the colonies overseas. Since her mother city, Corinth, was Dorian, Syracuse was also considered a Dorian city-state. These cultural disparities came to a head in the famous Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. Although these two great powers, greatest of the Greek city-states in terms of manpower, prestige, and authority, had come together in a heroic joint efforts against the Persians 50 years before, in Greece's finest hour, they fought a bloody and devastating war across mainland Greece for 27 years in the latter half of the 5th century BC. In 415 BC, during a lull in the fighting in the war, Athens received a plea from Segesta to aid her against her rival, Selenus. A fierce debate ensued among the Athenian council. The war party, led by the fiery and brilliant young orator Alcibiades, was for an all-out attack on Sicily, and especially Syracuse, while the peace party, led by the venerable Nicias, was for refusing the plea for help. After a fierce and passionate debate, Nicias, realizing that he was losing the argument, changed tactics and told the Athenians that in order to conquer Syracuse, the fleet and army would have to be increased tremendously from the current proposals, which he thought would bring the Athenians to their senses. To his horror, the Athenians enthusiastically endorsed his plan and voted that the expedition fleet be increased from 60 ships to 100, along with 5,000 hoplites. To send such an expedition when Athens was in the middle of fighting for her very existence seems like nothing short of madness. Nonetheless, the Athenians cheerfully outfitted their expeditionary force and sent them on their way. They also rather ridiculously appointed three generals to lead the force, each with equal authority, Alcibiades, Nicias, and a soldier named Lamachus. 
Unsurprisingly, these men had very different ideas about how to conduct the campaign, and matters were confounded when Alcibiades, perhaps one of the only competent members of the expedition, was recalled to Athens to defend himself against charges of sacrilege. For the next two years, the Athenians squandered their veteran hoplite force and navy in fruitless battles with the Syracusans. Syracuse had been caught somewhat unprepared, but with their brilliant general Hermocrates and a thousand Spartan hoplites under Gallippus, they soon fought the Athenians to a standstill. Disease, especially malaria transmitted by mosquitoes from the local swamps, wreaked havoc on the Athenian camps. And although on at least two occasions they nearly had possession of the city, by the second year of the siege they were in dire straits. A furious naval battle ensued within the very gates of the great harbor of Syracuse, where the Syracusans destroyed the entire Athenian fleet, trapping her men on the shore. The remaining Athenian hoplites attempted to retreat into the interior of Sicily, but finally, surrounded and battered by the javelins and missiles of their enemies, they surrendered. The two remaining Athenian generals were executed by the Syracusans, and the rest of the prisoners, 7,000 in all, were enslaved to work in the Syracusan quarries, where marks from their pickaxes are still visible today. Barely a man escaped back to Athens from this catastrophic expedition. Thucydides reports that no Hellenic army had ever suffered such a reverse. The failure of the Sicilian expedition, as it came to be called, was the beginning of the end for Athens. Following her defeat, she declined rapidly, finally being occupied by Sparta in 404 BC. For Syracuse, however, the Sicilian expedition marked one of her finest moments. She had driven off one of the most powerful Hellenic empires of the day, and the influx of loot and slaves from the victory were a welcome financial boost after the drain of the war. Domestically, though, Syracuse still struggled with instability and factional strife. In 407 BC, Hippocrates, the victorious Syracusan general, died in a street riot while trying to seize power. Later, threatened by a Carthaginian invasion, Hippocrates' lieutenant Dionysius seized power as tyrant of the city. Thus, for all her military glory, Syracuse missed the opportunity to capitalize on her victory due to her political dissensions, coups, and counter-coups. Although both Athens and Syracuse had invited Carthage to join in the war of the Sicilian expedition, she had remained silent during the duration of the conflict. But in 410 BC, the desperate city of Segesta once again called for aid against her rival, Salinas, this time asking the Carthaginians for help. Hannibal Mago, not to be confused with the much more famous Hannibal Barca of the Punic Wars, current leader of the Maganig clan, earnestly pressed the Senate to promise aid. Besides fearing the power of Syracuse, Hannibal also likely had personal reasons for wishing to attack Syracuse. His grandfather was Hamilcar, the Carthaginian general who had perished at Himera in the First Sicilian War. Although the Maganids had made Carthage prosper mightily in the 70 years following Himera, the memory of their defeat likely remained a blemish on their otherwise stunning record. In 409 BC, 
Hannibal sent a force of 5,000 Libyan levies and 800 Greek mercenaries to assist Segesta. The following year, in 410 BC, Hannibal himself crossed over into Sicily with a formidable army of Libyan troops and Spanish mercenaries. Confident in the strength of his army, Hannibal attacked Syracuse's allies along the Sicilian coast. Within a week, they reduced Salinas to a pile of ashes. Following this, Hannibal moved north to destroy Himera and blot out the disgrace of his grandfather. Sensing their danger, the citizens of Himera sallied out to attack the Carthaginians, thinking to catch them unawares. Unfortunately for them, after fierce fighting in the fields, the Carthaginians drove the Himerians back into the city. Although some escaped in Syracusan ships, promised aid from Syracuse never came. After a three-day siege, Himera fell, and the Carthaginians razed it to the ground. Greek historians also claim that Hannibal sacrificed 3,000 prisoners on the spot where his grandfather Hamilcar had died. Having left the Sicilian Greeks in disarray, Hannibal led his men triumphantly back to Africa. Interestingly enough, Carthage first began mending mass coinage sometime around the Second Sicilian War in order to support its larger armies. Modeling their coins on Western Greek examples, Carthage developed these coins to pay their extensive mercenary forces, and these coins were not very heavily used in the everyday markets of North Africa. They were likely called shekels like their Tyrian counterparts, and were most often made of gold, silver, or bronze. Curiously enough, although the Carthaginians came relatively late to the coin-making game, they are one of the first civilizations we know to have used paper currency in the form of promissory notes. Using this new influx of coinage, Hannibal Mago would be back in Sicily in 406 BC, leading a formidable force of Carthaginian citizens, Libyans, and Iberians. He besieged Acragas, the ancient ally of Syracuse. Famed for its luxury and decadence, Acragas had long grown wealthy by maintaining a strict neutrality in the recent conflicts, and as a consequence, its citizens were absurdly soft and apathetic about the whole siege. A decree from the city's military commanders illustrates this. The decree limited soldiers on night duty to having only three blankets or two pillows. Under the circumstances, they were unlikely to put up much of a fight. Syracuse, on the other hand, seeing the danger to her ally, gave her a contingent of hoplites and ships to aid in the defense. But the Acragians' best ally was the plague that broke out in the Carthaginian camps. Numerous Carthaginian soldiers succumbed to disease, including Hannibal Mago himself. Undeterred, the Carthaginians, under their new general, Himilco, mounted such a successful assault that the citizens of Cragus agreed to evacuate the city and turn it over to Carthage. Plundering the city, Himilco then set his eyes on Syracuse. By this point, Dionysius had seized power as tyrant of Syracuse due to the threat posed by the Carthaginians. Though of moderate birth, Dionysius possessed both a brilliant, charismatic personality and a ruthless political instinct. Elected as one of the generals of the city, Dionysius faked an attack upon his own life, 
making the Syracusans vote him a personal guard of 600 hoplites to protect him. Later, he managed to increase their number to a thousand, and before the Syracusans knew it, Dionysius ruled over them as the new tyrant of the city. Meanwhile, Himilco had sacked the city of Gela, home of Gelon, as well as Camarina. Moving on from there, Himilco inflicted multiple defeats on Dionysius's mercenary hoplites, leaving the road to Syracuse open. Yet, with the Syracusans reeling, the Carthaginians unexpectedly turned back. We are uncertain why Himilco chose to withdraw, but disease could possibly have been a deciding factor. Some historians estimate that the Carthaginians had lost close to 50% of their initial forces due to plague. Dionysius himself may have also played a role. A forceful diplomat, he could have convinced Himilco that an assault on Syracuse would be an unnecessary and costly undertaking. Even in its weakened state, Syracuse would have still been a formidable nut to crack, and Himilco might well have been wary remembering the Athenian disaster from eight years before. Whatever the reasons, Himilco made peace with the Syracusans. Although the terms heavily favored Carthage, granting them extensive authority over western and central Sicily, as well as making Syracuse pay them a large tribute, Himilco allowed Dionysius and his Syracusans the chance to escape to fight another day. This would not be the first time that a Carthaginian general hesitated at the moment when total victory was in his grasp, and the Carthaginians would have reason to rue their decision to let Syracuse off the hook in the coming years. Yet for now, Himera and Hamilcar were avenged under the strength of the Magonid arms, and the power of Syracuse was curtailed significantly. In spite of this, Next time, we will see how short-lived this Carthaginian triumph truly was. Until then, take care.